As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. And welcome, everybody. Believe Sports Biz Sports Media, also heard on pod clips around the world. I am Fred. You can email us at sportsfred at AOL.com, sportsfred at AOL.com. Art Source with us, Galaxy Sports in uh, Pennsylvania. And, of course, he also kicked for the Rams and the Trojans. And Matthew DeVos, uh, Fine author, the latest, uh, Lords of the Gridiron, College Football's Greatest Coaches, with us uh, this afternoon. And we're taping this at uh, 2.30 Pacific on, on Thursday. It's uh, 5.31 right now, uh, Eastern Standard Time. So things could change. But uh, right now, Art Source, the world is going even crazier. Antonio Brown, wanted by the police. Uh, Artie, what's going on? Well, the latest I heard was he was throwing shoes around and he hit his wife. He threw all her clothes out of the out on the street and uh, he's got the doors locked and that's the last I've heard of it. It's just such a sad, sad byline. I mean, there's a guy that, that five years ago was probably the best wide receiver in the NFL off to a great career, came out of central Michigan, third round draft pick worked so hard. I used to go to a lot of the Steeler preseason camps up in Latrobe. And, you know, when he caught passes in practice, he would run 80 yards down the field in the end zone. He was a great role model for the kids, the other young receivers. And then something happened. You know, I don't know if it was the multiple Rolls Royces and Bentleys that he got in trouble with or or LeBron James or, or whatever. Uh, it's just really sad. And, and you know, I, I just feel bad. I feel bad for everybody involved. And I, I just hope Tom Brady doesn't call him up and, you know, have to get him off the ledge or something like that. Uh, Matthew Diabas, you're a sports historian. Anything like this? And why is it happening so often, more often nowadays than before? Uh, I, I remember that there's a German philosopher, I think it was Schopenhauer, once said to have fame and youth at the same time can be too much for a mere mortal. And handling all that money, the fame, the attendant media attention, sometimes, you know, you people can wilt in the face of the, the harsh glare of the spotlight. They can wilt. Uh, they find you know, the, 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 their lesser characters emerge and all of that. Uh, sometimes, you know, you're forced to grow up in a very hurry. You know, you're, you're amassing this massive responsibility. You're a franchise player, a great wide receiver and all that, enormous burdens and all that. And some people can't deal with that. No matter how great their physical talents are, the emotional burning of being, you know, a star, a hero, 
can be crippling. And especially in this day and age, when actually when fame uh, goes, uh, athletes are getting younger and younger when they achieve fame and handling it. And it can be a very difficult thing. Whereas in the old days, you know, there was some age involved. You were more, you were more in your twenties and all that, and you could handle it more. There was more education. There was more, you know, it was a slower process to attaining fame and all that. But now it's so speeded up, you know, you can become famous, you know, like those female gymnasts at 12 and 13 years old and, how, and, 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 you know, and yet some of them, you know, were dealing with, you know, that, that, that molestation out of Michigan and all of that. I mean, they were coping with those issues. I mean, you're seeing like Naomi Osaka, you know, she can't play in the majors simply because her mind, you know, it's just, it's too much, you know, it's just, it is a psychic strain and, you know, and it can be too much for a mere mortal. I mean, in a sense, either you rise to your level or you descend, and sadly, Antonio Brown is descending. And uh, man, Jason, what a way to go, man! Folks, if you have any opinion, uh, email us at sportsfred at aol dot com. Sportsfred at aol dot com. Anthony uh, Matthew Diabas has written uh, for at least four major books. The latest, uh, Lords of the Gridiron, College Football's Greatest Coaches. Not the latest. That was three years ago. The latest is uh, on pro football, Amazon.com, Amazon.com, major bookstores everywhere. So we're going to talk most of this uh, segment uh, on coaches locally in Southern California. I'm putting Matthew on the spot because uh, he really hasn't had time to grade him as he would in his uh, his major books. But let's start with Art. uh, Art, uh, let's start with UCLA's Chip Kelly. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate Chip Kelly's uh, work so far? Five years as a Bruin and, of course, Oregon before that, NFL in between. Your comments. You know, I, I, I personally think Chip Kelly is, is kind of a, a combination of a savant, and, and yet he just does some stupid things. He doesn't get along with people as well as I thought that he might have when he first started Um, the job he did at the university of Oregon. Well, you know, a lot of people will say that Mike Bellotti actually can't, you know, made the cupboard full for him and helped him out was wonderful. Came really close to winning the national championship. Then he went to Philly in the first year, he had everything going in the right direction. You know, he brought in analytics. He brought in, you know, the, the keeping the guys, you know, from overworking and things like that and nutrition and, and then he went to San Francisco after three bad years in Philly and he fell off the, the ladder. And all of a sudden with UCLA, these last two years, they've had such great potential, but there's something missing. You know, the Charbonnet situation, him not playing in a couple of games actually cost UCLA in the end. He had a talented team, easily as good as the USC team, but they just couldn't come over, come up with the big play at the right time. And I have to rate him on a scale of one to 10, no more than a, a seven and a half or an eight. And at one time I thought he was a nine. Yeah. All right. Uh, Matthew Diabas, sports historian, uh, author of Lords of the Gridiron, college football's greatest coaches and pro football's greatest coaches. And down the road, he'll be doing basketball coaches. I know, but right now uh, you heard what uh, Art Source said about UCLA's Chip Kelly. How would you rate him? 
Well, right now, I don't have him rated at all because he hasn't played 10 full seasons at the Division I-A level because for me to put on my evaluation system, you have to have a minimum of 10 seasons. He hasn't reached that threshold yet. So I don't really have him on my charts as it right as it is right now. I mean, he started off great in his initial college career. And I was right there. I mean, when he would, when he came to Philadelphia, I remember that first season. From all, I was a believer. I mean, they, they, I got him into the playoffs and all that. I mean, if it was, I remember the one of the reasons why they didn't last that long is that they just didn't have enough depth. They didn't have any defensive depth. Uh, and also, they were, he was using an old Michael Vick who, if he had had a young Michael Vick, I think he could have gone even further because that's what he really needed was a young stud RPO quarterback, like a young Michael Vick or like a young Randall Cunningham and all that. Uh, but he did. He had Nick Foles, who wasn't really an RPO quarterback. He was a traditional you know, pocket passer and all that. But also there were, the defense was suspect. But after that first season, what happened is that he was using that up-tempo offense. And it was getting initial results. But as the time passed, uh, the following season, the NFL had ciphered him out. They figured out the secret. Okay, you, there's ways to slow him down and also deny them possession and, you know, and it worked against them. And also that up-tempo offense had a bad problem. They moved so quickly, it wasn't giving the Eagles defense proper rest. And so when the opposition got it back, all they had to do was just grind it out and it just wore the Eagles defense down. And also they didn't really have that depth of talent anyway. And basically uh, Chip Kelly's secret was, you know, they figured it out and he became, he went from the penthouse to the outhouse. And now He's back in college football trying to pick up the pieces. But the thing is at UCLA, it's a, it's, it's a basketball college. It's never what, I mean, unless in the sixties, it wasn't really a football college. And unlike Lincoln Riley at USC, I mean, you, you got to have those horses. And now with Lincoln Riley at USC, you know, getting them back in, a, in the national championship picture there, God bless them, you know, that it's long overdue. They needed that. Um you know, in the recruiting battles in California, now USC is going to get the nod and they're going to get those horses. And Chip Gallagher, I think he's just going to slide further into oblivion. So on a scale of one to ten, I think of him as probably a four and a half and he's probably going to keep going right on down. I got to check to see if he's going to be eligible with the completion of the season, if he's got his 10th season. And then I could put him in the charts. And then if he is, then I'll let you guys know where he stands now on my all-time list. You know, maybe a year from now, we'll go, we'll go back and say, where is Chip now? Okay. He'd have to yeah. work another year because it was four at Oregon and five at uh, now at UCLA. So that's nine. Yeah. Well, he, did he, he coach it, man? Did he coach it? Does that count? What? I think he he coached the, the the Black Bears of Maine for a couple seasons. I don't know. If that I know counts. it's got to be Division One A and strictly One A. Oh, okay. If it's lower levels, doesn't count. It's like Jim Trestle in my book. You know, he had done a lot of coaching at the Division uh, was it two level or two A level? Youngstown, Youngstown State, State, right, man? right, right, yeah. right. But that doesn't factor in my calculations. When I did my book, I focused solely on his work at Ohio State because he got those 10 beautiful seasons in. And wow, they were very good seasons. I mean, I mean, amazing results. I mean, you got to give, despite the way he ended his thing, his career at Ohio State, you got to give the man credit. I mean, I interviewed him and just listening to him on the telephone, I understood why he was able to get those results at Ohio State. I mean, that guy had command presence. I mean, even though I never played a lick of football in my life, if I had been a football player and he was asking me to join Ohio State, I would have signed right there on the dotted line. He had that presence 
You just instinctively did what the man told you to. He didn't even have to intimidate you. It's just, it was like doing what he said was the most natural thing in the world, Jim Tressel. Great interview. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's talk about across town and uh, mention name Lincoln Riley. Art, uh, how would you rate on a scale one to 10 Lincoln Riley, Oklahoma, and now USC? Art, I mean, he, what, he's done, what he's done in the first year is just unprecedented. I mean, I realized the transfer portal, he brought in 40 some guys, brought in Caleb Williams, who knew the system. But still, to put those guys together and to build the, the continuity and the team, you know, the team togetherness, you know, putting them at the cusp of a CFP playoff berth based on what happens tomorrow night against Utah in the Pac 12 championship. I mean, I got to give him, you know, high grades. And I know Matthew's going to talk about the fact that he hasn't coached that long because I only think he had five years prior to this job at, uh, yes. at Oklahoma. And, you know, the question I have with Lincoln Riley is can he find a defensive coordinator that can bring the kind of cachet <laughs> he brings to offense to the defensive side? If he does that, they've got a chance to compete with anybody. My dream game in, in the semifinal of the CFP would be USC's offense against Georgia's defense. Now I have a, being an SC fan and, a, and an ex USC football player, I don't like what I see, but I think it would be fascinating from a perspective of one of the better defenses under Kirby smart against a really incredible, incredible offense run by Lincoln Riley. I'm going to give him an eight and a half with a little room because I still think, in the playoffs, he's proven that he hasn't been able to win in big games. So that's my only problem with him right now. Matt, what are your thoughts on that? Artie, you took a lot of words out of my own mouth. But it, you, what you just said was spot on, and I absolutely concur with you, with your analyses. Riley will crack into my charts. We just got to wait for him to get his 10 seasons in. I mean, his work at Oklahoma – is absolutely sensational. And what he did with USC, actually, I think going to USC was probably the best decision of all because in USC, with the Pac-12, he is operating in a vacuum. Here, here he's got a potential. USC desperately needed someone with his talents. If he can maintain a clean program, you know, unlike Pete Carroll, who they you know, he, he basically fled the ax man when he left the, after 2009. I mean, the, the one that all hell broke loose after he, he resigned to, get, to take the Seattle Seahawks job and that scandal and all that. It took so long for USC to recover from that scandal. And it, it, there's still residue and all that. But Riley is exactly in the best situation. He's in a vacuum. And if he can get talent, and just like Artie said, he has got to get like a Brent Venables type defensive coordinator, a defensive coaching stud who can get, give like John McCain. John McKay at USC had defensive coordinator studs and Wayne Fonts and all that. And he got killer defenses when he won those national championships, you know, in 67, 72, and 74, because he had the defensive coordinators. He's got to get a stud, a defensive coordinator who can, you know, get that defense together. But I already said, uh, Lincoln Riley uh, and, and has more playoff defeats in CFP competition. He He's closest. I have this term I invented called a heartbreak coach. That's a coach with a minimum of five playoff appearances, yet they can't even make it to the championship game. Forget about winning the championship. Just get a ticket to the big dance. And Lincoln Riley has three CFP losses. And Matthew, he talks on two Matthew, more. Matthew, 
Marty Schottenheimer's on line one for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's the greatest heartbreak coach in NFL history, according to my calculations. Yeah. He is the greatest of all time. And what about John Cooper? Does John Cooper fall in there somewhere? <laughs> well, you mean the hockey? You mean the college? Well, no. But that, the Ohio State that. coach was 2-10-1 against Michigan. And, I mean, just yeah. the poor guy. Every year he had these great teams, and they, he just couldn't, he couldn't fill, fulfill the deal. Yeah, right, but they this didn't is have a, CFP back then. But uh, Riley, if he hacks on two more CFP losses, he will be the very first heartbreak coach in college division 1A uh, playoff CFP history. I mean, right now he's got three. No other coach has more uh, CFP losses without ever appearing in a national championship game. So it's going to be interesting to see how USC copes. But I think he's in the better position than he is in Oklahoma. You know, he's got that vacuum. He can get the, if he can get the prestige back to USC, he's going to get the talents out there on the West Coast there. And the thing about the Pac-12 is USC was always the flagship college. As USC went, the Pac-12 went. When USC goes down the tubes, the Pac-12 goes down the tubes. If he can get USC back into the CFP picture, I think and as years go by, he's going to get those defensive studs. And if he can just find the right coach, I think then you're going to see USC playing in the national championship game. Uh, right now, uh, Artie, what, how do you what, where'd you put him? Was it eight, a, a low eight or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say yeah. about eight or an eight and a half. And if he can keep going, I think his stock will go steadily higher. But he's got to get that defensive coordinator. Yeah, of course, uh, the Big Ten instead of the Pac-12, maybe in 2024. But very quickly, because I, I want to talk about something after this, John McVay of the Rams. They win the Super Bowl last year. Uh, they're going to probably win four or five games total in this year's uh, performance. Matthew DeBoss, how would you rate John McVay? Well, you know, he's featured in my book, you know, uh, Lords of the Great Iron Two, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches. I had him, I think, was it uh, somewhere in the 30s, the mid-30s position. I think it was at 35, 36 or something like that. Now with this uh, with this bad substandard season, I think there's going to be a little bit of drop off because before there wasn't really any drag. But if he fails to make the playoffs, I think there's either he's going to remain his position remains stack or he might even drop back a notch because my my rating system is kind of like the stock market. Either your stock isn't going up or it's going down. Very rarely does it remain static and all of that. So I think McVay might lose a slot or two, you know, if if the Rams, especially if the Rams have a losing season and, and fail to make the plots definitely. Yeah, there's going to be some drop off there. I mean, they're dealing with injuries. I mean, Cooper Cup is out and all that. Stafford, you know, he's getting older and all that. It just... um I, I, he's just got to rebuild and recalibrate and just get some youngsters there and hopefully get it all back again. Artie, in a minute, uh, tell us how your vote uh, as far as Sean McVay is concerned. I'm not a big Sean McVay, McVay fan. Uh, I think what he did last year was wonderful, but I also think he had some help. I think the NFL really wanted to pay the Rams off and Stan Kroenke and Mrs. Walton for building the $6 billion <laughs> stadium so far. And, I mean, I saw the end of the Cincinnati Bengals Super Bowl. I didn't see half those penalties they called. I mean, and, you know, I, they want to call him a genius. But then again, I saw what, what Belichick did to him in his first Super Bowl down in the uh, the New Orleans, you know, Mercedes Dome. Shut him down. I mean, they had nothing. I think they, you know, they may have had a field goal or something. So, I mean, the guy has great potential. He came from a football family. His late grandfather, John McFay, big in the 49er organization, 
was also a coach for the Giants. So he does have that great nepotism going for him in that sense, like a Kyle Shanahan and Mike Shanahan, uh, Paul Hackett and uh, Nathaniel Hackett, although that doesn't seem to be working very well either. But my point is, and I'm going to say this, okay, I think the hardest thing to do is to stay great when you win a Super Bowl. Everybody wants to go in different directions. This is what makes what Belichick, what Lombardi accomplished, what some of the great coaches like Landry accomplished. They have that ability to maintain the level for a lot of years. And that's what separates greatness. I think he's got a lot of great offensive tendencies. Uh, he, he does really well. He's got to watch out for guys coming off the sideline, though. Either that or wear a helmet on the sidelines, one or the other. But I rate him a seven and a half with a lot of room to either go up or go down. But he's got a lot of energy, Fred. You can't ever, you know, question that. I think he's got a major league ego, and it was, I think he's going to be going down. All right, very quickly, and this is, to me, the most topic, biggest, most important topic in sports right now, in my opinion, anyways. LeBron James at a press conference uh, yesterday, and we're taping this on Thursday, indicates he's very upset that uh, sports writers and uh, sports talk show hosts are not discussing uh, one Jerry Jones. 1957, Arkansas, the kids are trying to desegregate uh, a school in Arkansas, and uh, a lot of white kids are uh, booing and saying no, 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 and right in the middle of it is uh, one Jerry Jones. Does that bother you? Uh, now you're going to say it's uh, 43 and 65 years ago, Artie, but to me, it bothers me. I think you know, I don't think he ever changed. I don't think Mel Gibson was any different when he was 14 than he is now when he made his comments. I don't think Kyrie was any different when he was young than now. And I don't think Jerry Jones was any different. Your thoughts? Well, first of all, the spokesman, I have no respect for at all. But I do see exactly what you're saying. You know, Jerry Jones is who he is. He's never he's never not said he was. He's a huckster. He's a he's a snake oil salesman who's who's from an oil family. He's lucky he had a very wealthy father. Uh, he got to play, you know, football under under Frank Broyles. And then Barry Switzer, uh, hanging out with Barry Switzer, you know, the bootlegger's son, you know, that could probably give you some bad habits alone. But the bottom line is Jerry Jones is Jerry Jones. He's a brilliant businessman. He thinks he knows football, just like Al Davis knew football, but the game passed him up at the end. And he made a comment the other day, you know, how about them Cowboys? We're going to the Super Bowl. And I'm going to tell you something. They're not going to any Super Bowl. Okay, and and you know they may think they are, but what have they done since the Super Bowl? You know, on the same lines, racial lines. You know, that almost never happened in Phoenix when they beat the Steelers. That that's so far long ago. I mean, we're talking almost twenty five years. So I mean, we really hasn't proven himself recently. And you know, I just I kind of see what LeBron's saying, but. You know, Jerry Jones is an old man. He's he's not going to change his views. It's like Jerry Richardson with Charlotte. I mean, with uh, the Carolina Panthers, you know, they had to just kind of usher him out. They're going to probably have to do the same thing with Dan Snyder. But he has so much power because of what he's brought to the NFL money wise. Nobody's going to say anything negative about it. Matthew DeBoss, uh, to conclude this show, I'd love your comments about uh, Jerry Jones, 1957. North Arkansas, your comments. My question is this. I, what I would like to do is ask one of those African-American students who, who desegregated that central high. Do you recall Jerry Jones? Did he say anything to you? Was he violent with you? 
I mean, did he, you know, did he spit on you? Did he, you know, use racial epithets? I mean, if he's just standing there, I mean, there's a difference between standing there and being a, a participant in a racist incident and all of that. I, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, he was there as a student. I mean, any one of us could have been back there and be just being a bystander to something, you know, something, something awful. And I mean, was he an active participant in, in the racism and the resistance towards the integration of Central High School in 1957? I would like to, I wish I could ask one of the African-American students there, okay, do you recall Jerry Jones? What was he doing or what was he saying or what was he not doing and not saying? I don't know. It would be one thing now if, the, if, you, if there's record of Jerry Jones contributing to like Oath Keepers or Proud Boys or the Klan, something like that. If he's doing that today, then yeah, he, he definitely deserves deserving of censure or you know some type of punishment or something like that. But 65 years ago, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I understand LeBron James's concern, but I mean it's. That, that was then, but what Shouldn't about Shouldn't he be more concerned with Kyrie, Kyrie Irving and, and, the, and the situation going on there? I mean, if I was LeBron James and my old teammate is talking about what he's talking about, that seems to have a lot more, a lot more relevance today than what somebody did back in 1957. Your thoughts, friend? Well, yeah. I mean, because you know, we're, we're living in the now and all that. I mean, Kyrie is doing a very good job of self-destructing himself. You've got all this talent and you know, what he was doing with Brooklyn and all that. I mean, it was kind of insane. I mean, it was just basically cutting his own throat and all that. I mean, come on, man, grow up and get with it, man. Play basketball, man. Get it together, man, you know, and all right. that. But let me, just, let me just end the show with this. Uh, an old German joke, not really funny. Ten people at a table, one's a Nazi. They're all Nazis, my opinion. Um, and uh, folks, agree, disagree, uh, sportsfredatao.com, sportsfred at AOL. Hey, Fred. Yes. Fred, let's, I want to pay a little homage to one of my favorite all-time pitchers who passed away today, yeah. Gaylord yeah. Perry. Yeah. I loved him, watched him for many, many years. I used to watch that, the mannerisms where he touched his hair, his hat, and they'd all say, he's loading one up. He loaded one up for 22 years, won two Cy Young Awards, and was a Hall of Famer. Passed yeah. away at 84 today, Gaylord Perry. I just wanted to to pay a little homage to him. Rest and in that, peace, man. Rest in he, peace. He, yeah. he, he yeah. never got he never got to uh, advertise for Vaseline. Huh. All right, That's right. Uh, it, it, it already, did you hear the story <laughs> I put up on Facebook? He reached out to Johnson and Johnson. Hey, I'll do a I'll do an endorsement of Vaseline if you'll do it for me. And Johnson Johnson said, uh, "Unfortunately, we our product soothes babies' asses, not baseballs. No." <laughs> For Matthew DeVos, uh, for Art Source, uh, for Mario, uh, we'll be back uh, next week uh, across America and around the world right here on Believe Sports Biz Sports Media, also heard on PodClips. Bye, everybody. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 